Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Jeff, for reading our lesson. It is so good to be in worship with each of you and in fellowship. And I have to begin with a word just of welcome uh, to Dr. Kamalo and Dr. Hancock. It is so, so great. Uh, I'm just going to call you Ray and Carolyn. That's much too formal for our relationship. And it's so good to have you back. Uh, Carolyn was with us last night in Saturday worship, and we referred to Brentwood as her second home. And Ray, I hope that you know as well, this is the second home for you. And uh, we're so glad that you're here and look forward to the banquet on Thursday. Uh, And our interns who are here, Katie and Alyssa, are from Emory University, from Candler School of Theology, and they'll be having lunch with our church council this afternoon and reporting on their experience in Howick and around South Africa, and we're very, very excited about that. And these third grade Bibles at each service, each of our services this morning, our third graders will be receiving uh, the scriptures. This is a tradition that goes back, what, 60 years or better? In fact, uh, let's just sort of check the room a second. How many of you received a third grade Bible? How many of you remember receiving a third grade Bible? (laughs) There you go. It goes way back. Uh, Did you notice that the Bibles are a little more colorful? I think when I got mine 50 years ago, we based our spirituality on how large the Bible was. It was huge. It was a big Bible. And, uh, but we're so grateful for this gift for the gift of third graders, our children, and for the gift of entrusting to them the Word of God. Well, if you're joining us today for the first time, you've caught us right in the middle, in fact, right at the turn of this series on Genesis that we're calling The Human Purpose. And the text that Jeff just read for us represents, I think, a major break in the book of beginnings. Chapter 12 begins the second section of Genesis. Now, remember that Genesis is made up of two sections. The first section, chapters 1 through 11, contains primeval history, that is, universal history of human existence with creation 
and the fall and sibling rivalry, the Cain and Abel story, the flood story, the tower. But today we make a turn into the second section, which has to do with the ancestral history of Israel, chapters 12 through 50, which begins with the call, the call story of Abram. And it's fascinating to me that all three major religions, all three world religions trace their beginnings to this man. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all alike claim Abram as their exalted father. And by the way, if you didn't know, that's what the name Abram means. It means exalted father. And so we see at this break in Genesis that the same God who in the beginning called the cosmos into being is now calling one man, one couple, to be the mediators of blessing to a corrupt and sinful world. The word of the Lord that came to Abram is an action word. In fact, the whole text begins with the word go. Go. Last week in the Babel story, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, we discovered that obedience to God, the kind of obedience that He's looking for in us, is not in settling, it's in scattering. I think it was Thomas Merton who said the biggest human temptation in the world is to settle for less than what God wants. I mentioned last week Delta Airlines has come out with this new ad campaign. I love this tagline, good things come to those who go. I love that line. I think it's biblical. Somebody mentioned to me after the service, however, last week that the word Delta is actually an acronym for don't expect luggage to arrive. <laughs> and I can vouch for that, been there. Uh, some others have said don't expect to leave the airport is the acronym. But good things come to those who go. The call of God is to go. The implicit point, of course, from that in the beginning is that faith is not so much a point of arrival. No one has arrived, but faith is a point of departure. In other words, following God is not just a destination, it's a journey. And isn't that why in the first century that we referred to the gospel movement, the Jesus movement, you know what they called it? They called it the way. It's what we mean when we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's in the going that we experience epiphany. This is true also. It's the same thing that Jesus essentially said after his resurrection just prior to his ascension in Matthew 28, go, go into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Good things come to those who go. Now, I want to pause it there for just a moment because I think context is absolutely critical in this story, in this call story. If you go back to chapter 11, just a few verses from what Jeff read to verse 27 and following, you'll get a little history lesson on the genealogy of Abram. He has a father. Abram's father is Terah. 
who came from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is southern Mesopotamia, and they settled for a time in Haran, which is modern-day Turkey. The brothers of Abram are mentioned by name. Nahor is one of them, along with a nephew. I bet you remember the nephew of Abram. His name was Lot. And you remember the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 30, we're introduced for the first time to Abram's wife. Her name was Sarai, later changed to Sarah, which literally in the Hebrew means princess. And what's interesting to me in the background in chapter 11 is that the Genesis writer specifies that Sarai was barren. She was childless. She was unable to conceive. Barrenness will become, as you know in the Scriptures from this point on, a metaphor for brokenness. Barrenness is a metaphor for hopelessness and despair. Barrenness is the way of human history without God. Add to their dilemma the fact that Abram is 75 years of age, and later we'll discover that they're living at a place called the Oaks of Mamre. It even sounds like assisted living. (laughs) In other words, Abram and Sarah have no, listen, they have no foreseeable future. They have no power within themselves to reinvent themselves for the days ahead. And here's the miracle. This is exactly the context in which God does his best work. It's not on mountaintops and hills. It's often in valleys, barren places. Wendell Berry, you know the name, from Henry County, Kentucky. He's 84 today. He's written a book called Standing by Words, in which he sort of talks about this barrenness. Listen to what he says. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Barrenness. It is against this backdrop of human hopelessness that God comes to Abram calling. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to a land, to the land that I will show you. I want you to notice something interesting about the call. God doesn't give an itinerary. You notice that? Those of you who understand that sense of calling, God doesn't give you a map. He certainly didn't give me an atlas when he called me to ministry. He simply says, go, and I'll show you. With God, it's often a as-you-need-to-know basis. The amazing thing about this story is that Abram doesn't ask directions. Well, maybe it's not amazing. He is a male, after all. I mean, you think about Moses, 40 years wandering, he never stopped to ask directions. Abram is called to a land that he does not know by the voice of one he cannot see. 
It reminds me of what Dr. Martin Luther King once said, faith is taking the first step even when you can't see the whole staircase. The Hebrews writer said it like this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things you cannot see. I don't know about you, but I'm from the Missouri state, metaphorically speaking. I want God to show me and then I'll go. Because in my book, seeing is believing. But in God's book, believing means seeing. Now, it's interesting to note that in order to go somewhere, to go to something, you have to leave from something. In other words, you can't really go forward without leaving something behind. In essence, I think following means forsaking. And God is very clear about this. Go from what? Go from country, go from kindred, go from your father's house. What God is saying is you need to leave the familiar. You have to leave the secure, the safe, the known. I read the other day a quote that if we're not willing to risk the unusual, we will have to settle for the ordinary. And to be sure to follow this Christ means sometimes forsaking some things. For Abram, it meant forsaking his social sanctuary, his family system, his culture, and get this, even his religion. Did you know that Abram and Sarah were pagan worshipers before Yahweh called them of the oldest Mesopotamian gods in Haran, namely the god called Nanar, who was the god of the moon and wisdom. And so this call story is actually a radical departure for this couple from all they have known and believed. I want to translate this scripture. Abram and Sarah are not simply leaving the worst of life, although faith always begins with repentance or turning from our sinful past. We're all sinners. There are some things you have to leave behind like ego, like self-righteousness. There are some things that in order to follow Jesus you have to forsake like pride, like prejudice, like petty partisanship, like judgmental attitudes that elevate myself while putting others down. And so forsaking, following God does mean forsaking that which is the worst in life, but it also can mean forsaking that which may be the best in life for something even greater. Think about the disciples when Jesus called the fishermen to follow. They didn't have a criminal record. They weren't guilty of criminal behavior. They left behind good stuff. I mean, they left their nets. They left their boats. They, they left their material blessings. They, they left their loved ones. They left the land. They left the family business. James and John left their father. Fishing business, Zebedee and sons, quickly became simply Zebedee and. and Jesus said, follow me. Go, and I'll make you fish for men and women. And they left the best that they knew for something better. They left the familiar for a deeper purpose. 
I want to say that sometimes we in the clergy, and I'm speaking to me, we portray faith as some kind of insurance policy that protects us from trouble and hardship. And nothing could be further from the truth. There's somebody here that asks me nearly every week after worship, Pastor, are you staying out of trouble? And my answer is always the same. No. It's what I do. I'm telling you, in this culture, I have job security. Faith actually calls us into the fray, into the tension we're called. And following Jesus is like tightrope walking without a net, and it always leads to a cross. But we don't see that sometimes until later. It's no wonder, I think, that we, we settle for less powerful voices than God. We settle for ideologies and propaganda and false truths rather than the speech of God because it's, it's not easy. I remember, I can see him in my mind's eye today. In my first appointment, I was 22 when I started serving this little church in Gainesville, Georgia. Uh, I looked more like an acolyte than a pastor. It was my first church. I had no idea what I was doing. Still don't sometimes. If I had known where this road was leading, I probably would have found another profession at 22. But I remember this man, he was in his early 70s. He was retired. He, he had been very successful. He was reputable in the community, respected. His home was like a page out of Southern Living. But he was a very sad guy, and I couldn't figure it out. I mean, he's just sad, and he had it all. And one day, his wife told me his story. She said, when my husband was a young man about your age, she said, he felt a call to ministry, but he had a good job. He had a mortgage, he had a young family, and he said no. And now she said, we have all the bells and whistles, all the signs of success, but for him it is no substitute for obedience. And he's sad. And when he sees you, he gets more sad. I said, well, I have that impact on some people. And would you believe two years later, he became a local pastor. And this man in his middle 70s finally said yes to a 50-year-old call. And sadness became joy. Now, now here's the good news. I, I'm not implying that you have to quit your day job and go to seminary. Please don't do that. But if you're to answer a call of God in your life, you do have to leave some things behind if you're going to go. Good things come to those who go, but sometimes you have to forsake the good for something better. Finally, I want you to notice in this text that the call of God, and this is really good news. This is my favorite part of the Scripture. The call of God always comes attached to a promise. I love this. I will make of you a great nation, says God to Abram, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, 
And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want you to notice there's a subtle connection, maybe not so subtle, here in this verse with the Tower of Babel story. In that story, humanity, humankind, tried to to achieve greatness through the work of their own hands. And you remember what happened to the tower? It was incomplete. It was unfinished, half-baked. Why? Because their purpose was too small. You remember the mission statement? Come, let us build a tower whose top reaches into the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. They wanted the same thing we want. They wanted prominence. They wanted legacy. They wanted status. They wanted their 15 minutes of fame. But greatness is not a human achievement, not really. It's a divine gift. Greatness comes not in self-fulfillment. It comes in self-emptying. And it's not just about getting blessed. It's about being a blessing. To be chosen, to be called of God, is not to live in isolation. It's a wider mission than that. The call of God is never to preserve ourselves, but to die to ourselves. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, when God calls a man or a woman to follow, he bids them to die to themselves. And this is exactly what Jesus meant when on his way to the cross, he said to his friends, whoever seeks to save his life, her life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, you save it. The blessing comes when we lose ourselves for the sake of somebody else. That's why our friends are here. That's what Thimbalili is all about. That's what these schools are all about, the sponsorships for these beautiful children. That's what Ray and Carolyn and Hugh and Lynn, that's why our interns are here because they're teaching us anew what we already know, that losing ourselves for Christ's sake enables somebody else to win. And I I don't know, have you ever discovered that sometimes you have to lose to win? You do. Now, we had almost an early Christmas miracle in South Bend, Indiana yesterday. (laughs) And someone said to Mason, It was a good loss. It was a good loss. They gave it all they had. Sometimes you have to lose to win. When I read the New Testament, I think that's what the gospel is all about. A God who gave up all heaven in order to clothe himself in flesh. And he risked it all for love's sake. And he lost. He lost his life. Well, he gave his life. He knew the cost and he paid it. And he was willing to lose so that we might be one to him. That's what it means to be a son, a daughter of Abraham. Don't you know that when God changed his name, Abram, which meant exalted father. Later, he would call him Abraham. You know what that means? Father of nations. 
father of multitudes. I'm thinking of my father this weekend. He, on Friday, September the 14th, two days ago, he died 14 years ago. It was a Memorial Day on Friday for our family. And we were reminiscing about the stroke at age 63 from which he never completely recovered. My mother and I had the privilege of ushering him in 14 years ago to the kingdom of heaven. And I have to tell you, my dad was a loser. Somewhere along the line, he lost his pride. Somewhere along the line, dad lost his need to be right about everything. Somewhere along the line, this man lost his will in the Father's will and just lost himself in love for Christ and his neighbor. He was a loser. Sometimes you lose to win. The last act of ministry he could do was to pray. We were all amazed that in his last days, he, he couldn't carry on a conversation. He couldn't say hello, but he could pray as clear as a bell. It's his native language. I went back to his bedroom one afternoon to see him, and he was napping, and I noticed beside his bed a little note card, and on it he had written some names, and I knew instinctively it was his prayer list, and I noticed that my name was on it. I think maybe that my father was a little afraid that he might forget us, and so he wrote down our names so that he could intercede on our behalf. And there was Sherry's name, there was Andrew and Haley, there was my mother and sister. We were all there on the list. And I, I sometimes still feel the intercession of my father. He was a loser. He lost himself in wonder, love, and praise so that others might win. He heard a call, and he said yes, and he was faithful in life and in death because he understood what Abram understood, that the greatest blessing is to be one. He was a son of Abram, and so are you, and so am I. The whole trajectory of human history takes a redemptive turn when somebody says yes. And Abram went, period, without knowing where he was going, but trusting in the voice of one that he could not see, he went. He lost himself in the promise of God, a promise that he never actually possessed. He only saw it from a distance, but he made it possible for you to see it and me, and you can do the same. When in obedience you empty yourself, empty myself for someone else, you discover your purpose in Christ. I'm here to tell you this morning, if you don't know, sons and daughters of Abraham, good things come <laughs> to those who go.
In Jesus' name, amen.